Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119, we'll be looking at the Lamed Strophe, verses 89 through 96. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. If you're visiting us online, you can find the uh, notes on the link next to our video. And we return again to Psalm 119, and I want to remind you of where we've been. The three previous weeks in this psalm have descended down to the psalm's low point. It's Nadir. In fact, the last section we looked at being the lowest. Consequently, there's a massive contrast in tone between the last eight verses and these eight verses. And I want to demonstrate that by reading... Um, from verses 81 through verses 96. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes look for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet... I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, They stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but... I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Lord God, as we study these eight verses, I pray that you would help us to see, to believe, and to trust in the unshakable certainties that you offer us, that we would find our hope not in the temporal and transient things of this world, but in your person, your character, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's quite a contrast between the last eight verses and this eight verses. And the emphasis here, just from the the verbs and and the nouns, is of security, certainty, endurance. In the last strophe, he was perishing away. The days of his life were few. He's like a wineskin in the smoke. They have almost made an end of me. He's despairing, he's at his wit's end, and here he finds something certain to hang his hopes on. 
he, he finds something that endures. Notice the emphasis of the language, especially in the first four verses. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand to this day. For all things are your servants. To get the emphasis on enduring, eternal, secure reality. In contrast to our lives that are like smoke, there are realities out there that are enduring and eternal. And if you're going to endure persecution, if you're going to endure the trials of this life, you and I need to have our hope secured on our eyes, fixed on those things that are unchanging and eternal. Eternal securities. We live in a world that is very tumultuous. Uh, the past election cycles in our country have demonstrated that, the social unrest. You look over to Afghanistan and you see the tumult over there. We live in uncertain times. A disease is moving around. A, a dear friend of mine's um, parents this last week were brought just to the edge of death um, suddenly. And we're aware of just how temporal, how much like a vapor this life can be. And we need to gird our hopes, sink our hopes into something that is secure. There's really, I think, two points to this strophe. First, know your security is only God and his word. Your security is only God and his word. And so in the first four verses, 89 to 92, I believe the psalmist is rehearsing for himself, declaring for himself, reminding himself in his affliction, he still has people after him, we'll see in this strophe, of things that are secure, unchanging, trustworthy, and then that becomes the launch pad for his application and his action in the second half. So know your security is only God and his word. Um, there are so many things in this world that promise to offer security. And yet this, this strophe begins, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So what is secure? What is unchanging? What is dependable? What is established? God's word stands firm. The first thing is this declaration. God's word stands firm. And he gives two um, descriptions of this. One is the duration. How long will God's word stand firm? What's its sell-by date? The answer is forever. Forever. And this ought to give us some encouragement. We, we got an old book here. The newest portions of our book are 2,000 years old. And for some, especially today, who, who only want what's new, what's fresh, what's bleeding edge, they can be tempted to scorn and look down on our revelation from God that is old. And yet that should be of no concern to us because God's word is forever dependable. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Its duration is forever. A little later in this psalm, the psalmist will declare, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And this isn't just hyperbole. Our Lord Jesus Christ emphatically made the same point. In fact, 
Um, if you ever struggle with, are we, are we taking the Bible too seriously? Just go look to Jesus and his use of scripture. You will not find a more staunch inerrantist than him. Let me give you two passages. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, not a jot, not a iota from the law will pass away till all is accomplished. Again and again, he answers his um, challengers, it is written. And so we have the model of our Lord Jesus Christ in his conviction that God's word is firmly established forever. But he also says the location, which is interesting. It's firmly fixed in heaven. Now, what are, we, what are we to make of that? When I think the idea is one of stability and peace. The psalmist is well aware of the chaos, the danger, the difficulty, the suffering, the pain in this world. He's been crying out for deliverance. We see in verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. And yet, in a world, in a realm where only God's will is done all the time, God's word is established. This is, this is part of the reality that makes um, the king's attempt to destroy the word. Remember when Jeremiah writes his scroll and the king tears off a piece of time and burns it up as if God's word is limited to this world? No, the God who spoke is in heaven. His word is secure. It's firmly established. Psalm 138, verse 2 says this, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The other reason I think God's word is in heaven is God's word is, is never something abstracted from his person. God's word is that which he speaks. Where is God located? He's located in heaven. So where is God's word? It's protruding from him. And so the psalmist begins by considering that despite the uncertainties, the fear, the persecution, the pain, the suffering, the tumult around him, he has a word which is secure, established, firmly fixed, forever. That's going to become the undergirding truth of this whole strophe, that opening declaration. Then we move on from declaration to demonstration. God's creation stands firm. God's creation stands firm. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand to this day for all things are your servants. So now he looks to God's creation. Now you may wonder, I thought we were talking about God's word. Now we're looking at creation. Bear with me for a moment. The creation testifies to at least three Encouraging truths about God and who he is. First, it testifies to his enduring faithfulness. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Here's another reality that's stable and permanent. It's not fleeting. God's faithfulness endures. And I believe the psalmist is seeing his faithfulness in creation. I was talking with someone this week, and but creation, as I've just said, is uncertain and things change. Well, at one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. God's faithfulness is seen in creation and the fact that the sun rises every day. God's faithfulness is seen in the creation that the plants grow 
He feeds the sparrows. In fact, taking the Bible seriously about how intimately God is connected to creation, you see his faithfulness. Let me just read to you one of my favorite passages in Job. You remember Job, after Job finally rounds the corner of beginning to sort of complain against God, I kind of wish I had a lawyer because then I could take him to court. And God just silences Job with a series of questions. Listen to this one, Job 38, 39 to 41. And, And think about how intimately God claims to be involved in this created world. Think of his faithfulness scene. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? That means God is claiming direct, immediate involvement in lions hunting. God is claiming that every little bird that cries out, cheep, cheep, is crying out to him, and he takes care of them. And if that's true, then the created order becomes a marvelous display of God's enduring faithfulness as he continues to feed his creation, as he continues to hunt the prey for the lion, as he continues to send forth the rain and his lightnings and the snow. In, in that sense, the, the pattern, the... The, what, what physicists can speak of as the uniformity of nature demonstrates God's faithfulness. The stars come out, the tides go in, the tides go out. All around us we see his faithfulness. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. Second reality that is seen in uh, God's creation is this. It testifies to his absolute power. And I don't think we've changed topics from the opening verse. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We go from talking about God's word to God's creation. What's the connecting thought? How is it that God made the creation? How is it that he established the earth? He spoke. See, we haven't changed topics at all. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. Now, that, that should be fascinating to us. Not only does Moses tell us what God did, he made the heavens and the earth, but he tells us how. God didn't perform a ritual. He didn't wave the wand. He didn't cast the spell. He didn't make a potion. He spoke. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This world exists because God spoke it into being. Moreover, the New Testament makes it clear this world continues to exist because God's speaking activity. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So where did, we'll use this podium, for example, what is the ultimate source of this podium? God speaking. What keeps all the atoms in it together? 
God's word he's speaking now. In fact, Andy Wilson in his book, The Notes from the Tilt World, makes this point. As we try to study reality, we ask, what are things made of? And you, you see the wood on this podium. And you say, okay, what's the wood made of? And you could say, well, it's made of wood. You say, okay, clever. What's the wood made of? Well, the wood's made of cells. What are the cells made of? Well, the cells are made up of molecules. What are the molecules made up? Well, they're made up of atoms. Well, okay, what are the atoms made of? Protons, neutrons, electrons, what are they made of? And then we start getting to some interesting leptons, uptons. Well, what are they made up of? Our metaphysic as Christians is ultimately everything is made up of the word of God. God spoke and it came to be and it stood fast. The universe around you is a spoken universe. And so I don't think he's changed thoughts at all. He's finding comfort. He's finding security. Something certain. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. How certain and how sure is God's word? He spoke it once. He made it. He spoke again, and he maintains it. Speech created and upholds all of the created order. Peter makes this point in 2 Peter. Let me turn there briefly. I mean, it's just astounding when you, when you think in biblical categories, all around us, we see the evidences and the power and the faithfulness of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, speaking of uh, scoffers coming. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word of God, that then existed, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. What maintains the universe until the day of judgment? The word of God. Theology has implications in how you view the world around you. You can see the faithfulness of God in grass growing. You can see the faithfulness of God in birds chirping. And you can see the evidences of the power, the enduring certainty, the firm fixedness of his word in the world around you. Third demonstration of God is his, the created order, I mean, testifies to his sovereign control. He made them. He spoke them into being. By your appointment, they stand fast, for all things are your servants. Now, there's a word play here because the word for appointment, by your judgment, by your statute, it's the same thing that for man is God's law. God is ruling and seen to rule, not just man to whom he gives oral law to, but he's ruling the created order as well. God's word serves as a guide and a rule and a measurement both for us and for creation. By your appointment, they stand fast for all things are your servants. So so get this. God spoke the world into being. God spoke and is speaking and maintains the world. He is faithful in it. And ultimately, it's all serving his purposes. This is another way of understanding the goodness of God even in suffering. Because, of course, these people who are hunting for him 
the wicked who lie in wait for him. They all fit within the all things are your servants. The New Testament is a very simple way of making this point clear. All things are from him, through him, and to him. Romans 11, Colossians 1. All things exist from God. He is their source. They maintain their existence through his power, and they exist ultimately with him as the end, the telos, the goal. It's another way of framing the world around you. Even as we see terrible things taking place in Afghanistan, terrible things taking place through uh, this pandemic, all things serve God. All things are his servants in an ultimate sense, even the Taliban. God appoints nations and raises them and lowers them. And we need to understand and look at the world. And even as we cry out against evil and injustice, these things exist because God spoke them into being. These things continue to exist because God upholds them by his power. And ultimately, they serve his purposes, even if they do it in a way that brings them judgment. This is the same God who's, who said in his word in Genesis 50, Joseph to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So the psalmist is going to cry out for help from his adversaries, and yet he's willing to see that all things serve God, ultimately, fit within his purposes. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Ephesians 1, 11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when we, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, when we find ourselves at our wit's end, I think it's important to remind ourselves of things that are certain and secure. God's word is certain and secure. And God's word is the reason everything exists. And God's word is the reason everything continues to exist. And ultimately everything exists to fulfill God's purposes. Frame your trial and your trouble within that worldview. But that's not the... Only thing he, he declared, his declaration, his demonstration, then his recollection. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So we've seen that God's word stands firm. We've seen God's world stands firm. Point C, those, finally we see those who delight in his word stand firm. Those who delight in his word stand firm. A lot of times in this psalm, the psalmist declares, speaks to his delight for God's word. This is no small theme. Let me read it to you a couple of the verses. Psalm 119, verse 14. I delight in your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, I delight, I find delight, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. And that may not be language we use frequently. I would ask you, well, what do you delight in? So let me try to unpack what I think he's getting. It, it pleases me. I, it, I, I find pleasure and comfort when I think of your word. And in that category, we delight in all sorts of things. What do you find yourself talking about when you're free to talk? What do you find yourself dreaming about, thinking of, when you 
daydream? What, where does your mind and your heart naturally go when you can go wherever you want? Well, for some people, it's their favorite sports team. For some people, it's their activities, their family, the next upcoming vacation. We, our hearts delight in all sorts of things. And this psalm, again and again, as it models for us a, a faithful man of God enduring through trial in a strange land, again and again and again, he's finding his pleasure, his delight in God's word. And so he remembers, I think he's reminding himself, not only can I trust God's word, but through trusting it, through finding out my delight in it, I have stood firm as well. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If I had not found my delight in something certain, something intransient, something firmly fixed, I would have perished. If you put your hope on things that can go up and down, the soap bubbles, the author of Ecclesiastes would say of this life, you may well perish in your affliction. And so he's reminding himself, I delighted in God's word, and I didn't perish. In his affliction, he delighted in God's law. In his affliction, he delighted in God's law. And in his affliction, his delight sustained him. And this is, again, a major theme of Scripture. You know, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. In the blistering heat, the Middle Eastern summer, his leaf does not wither. He does not perish in affliction because... He delights in God's law. So he's reminding himself, God's word is certain and sure. I see the evidence of that in in his created order that he's appointed and it stands. And I remind myself that in my past affliction, trusting in God's word, delighting in God's word, I've made it through it and I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's, that's the first strophe. Know that your security is only God and his word. Know this. Which then rounds the corner to find your security only in God and his word. Find your security only in God and his word. Let's read verses 93 to 96. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And so notice the movement. He declares these realities, right? In verse um, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. He declares and reminds himself that God's faithfulness endures to all generations, clearly seen in the created order. He reminds himself of God's power, his faithfulness, his control. And he reminds himself of the past deliverance 
vitality he'd received from God by trusting his words. And now that leads to the promise. The ESV translates, I will never forget your precepts. But there's actually, a, a, not a play on words, a, a parallelism. Uh, verse 89 opens boldly, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 93 opens similarly, Forever I will not forget your precepts. Now, that's the parallelism. He's responding. What's his response to God's firm, sure word? Just as your word, Lord, endures forever, so forever I will not forget. I will remember your precepts. So the first is remember his word for how long? Paralleling how long God's word lasts? Forever. Forever. Remember his word. Duration? Forever. Turn over to Second Peter, please, chapter 1. One of the reasons why I think uh, the ABF that Jake and some others have begun is so helpful is spiritual disciplines are critical for our perseverance in the walk of faith. What the uh, psalmist says here, I will not forget, only works if we actually take measures and means, if we do things. You can just make a bold declaration, I will not forget the Lord. But unless we're reading it daily, memorizing it, hiding it in our hearts, setting these patterns in place, it's just a bunch of words and hot air. But again and again, the Bible makes it clear the real challenge for God's people is to not forget. I mean, isn't that what happened to Israel in the wilderness? God would deliver them, and then they'd forget. Throughout the book of Judges, they'd be oppressed. They'd cry out, God would deliver them, and then they'd forget. Peter's approaching the end of his life, martyrdom. And I want you to see why he says he wrote this letter. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through um, 15. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I think what he means is I'm writing this letter, so anytime you want, you can open it back up and remind yourself of these things. So why is the letter of 2 Peter written? At least one reason, one correct answer is so that God's people could remind themselves of important truth. if, If you struggle with a pattern of daily Bible reading. Maybe one way to think of it is, it's my daily reminder. The psalmist makes this bold declaration, forever, or as the ESV says, I will never forget your precepts. And I'm suggesting to you that unless we come up with some practical means of following through with that, it's just a bold declaration. And so the application in response to the certainties that are put out in front of us demand a response from us. If, if God has such a sure word, we ought to remind ourselves of it, remember it, keep it in our minds, and that then will take effort, steps, application. There are a number of ways you can go about it. There's no perfect way. 
But what you're seeing in this psalm is the way to maintain your faithfulness in trial is to fix your hope on the God of the word and the word of God. And you're going to only do that by preventing yourself from forgetting and forgetfulness. And you do that by remembering. And that takes an action, a plan, discipline. Duration, forever. Then he gives a justification as well. Why? I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And that phrase, or some version of it, occurs 13 times in Psalm 119. Another major theme of this psalm is how God gives life. I think in many instances it actually means saving from death. In other instances it means something like strengthen or revive me. Read a couple examples. Verse 25, my soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life. Verse 93 is where we're at. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 149, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. And verse 175, let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. So a major theme in this psalm is that we are to turn when we're weak, when we feel we're at our wit's end, when we feel like we can't make another step. And we are to ask God for that life, for that strength, and he gives it according to his word. Which then becomes one of the reasons the psalmist says he won't forget God's word, because through your word, you give me life. And he wants life. He wants strength. So, so don't miss that connection. You want spiritual strength and power. You want to be able to persevere and make it through another day. You want to not perish in the way. Ask God for that strength and look to him to give it through his word. The means of grace that God ordinarily uses. Yes, he sometimes sends visions and angels. But normally, his weapon of choice, as I've said, for Giving strength to his people is through his word. So I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. If you believe, if I believe that this is really where strength is going to come from, we're going to be reading it zealously, eagerly. You see how much energy people take going to the gym, doing other things to get strength and vigor. If we believe this is how God strengthens his people, we will... Act on that belief. So remember his word. That's the first point of finding your security in God and his word. Second, entrust, point B, entrust yourself to his salvation alone. Man, verse 94a, that first bit, five words, so profound. I am yours, save me. 
That is, that is a wonderful passage. I don't know if you've seen the movie Luther, but Luther, um, in this dramatization, Martin Luther is just racked with guilt, and he finds this verse, and he just prays it over and over, sort of lying on the floor, I'm here to save me. And that's ultimately the cry of our hearts, right? I am yours, save me. The psalmist doesn't know what's going on. He, he knows the world exists because of God's word. He knows that in one sense, everything is God's servant. The stars, the seas, his enemies. He's tired. He knows those things are sure. He, I, I'm not going to forget your word. And then he just entrusts himself to God. I am yours, save me. You don't necessarily need to understand what's going on to entrust yourself to God. In John 6, 66 through 69, Jesus utters some of his strongest, hardest sayings about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Huge crowds have gathered around him because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Man, they liked that miracle. And so Jesus begins to um, winnow the group And he starts saying some hard, hard sayings. And we read in John 66, 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? He was very seeker sensitive. Simon Peter, I love this, Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know that song we sing, show us Christ, where else shall we go, Lord? Where else? Well, Peter doesn't understand what he's just said. Peter doesn't respond. I've got a deep theology. You were speaking metaphorically. and you, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. You don't always need to understand what's going on to say, but I do know you're trustworthy. He goes on to say, and we have come to believe and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. So I don't know where else, I don't, I'm not sure what to make of this, eat your flesh, drink your blood stuff, Lord. But I do believe you speak truth, and I do believe you're the Holy One of God, so we're not going anywhere. I'm yours, save me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why my enemies are coming after me. I know that ultimately they exist in a world that you spoke into being, that you uphold in which all things are your servants. So, entrust yourself to his salvation alone. The ground here is this. God is faithful to save those who are his. Notice this. I am yours. Save me. So the first part, the protesis has to be true. If you want the apodosis, that's the grammatical term for the if-then. The apodosis is the second half. if You are his, call on him to save you. Now the question for us is, are we his? Can can you say, I am yours, I'm your possession, I'm your property? That's the basis for the appeal, ground. God is faithful to save those who are his. I am yours, save me. And then the, the second bit, for I have sought your precepts, I think undergirds the ground. Because those who are his seek his precepts. In other words, I am yours, save me. And the evidence that I am yours is that I seek your precepts. And God saves those who are his. So he cries out a declaration of dependence. I am yours, save me. And then he provides some evidence to show he is his. 
For I have sought your precepts. These are the marks of God's children. We're getting back again. We haven't gone far from trusting God and his word and the word of God. So remember his word. Entrust yourself to his salvation alone. Point C, remain faithful in adversity. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I was reading some um, urgent pleas from Christians in Afghanistan who expect very soon um, to be killed. Um, and it's a very real possibility. You know, we can read, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Well, sometimes that's literally true. And we thought of Daniel and how the king's advisors lay in wait to destroy him, and he was thrown to lions. Sometimes this isn't metaphor. And yet Daniel is able to be faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ was able to be faithful. Like th- This medicine works if we'll receive it. It can, it can, if you put your hope and your trust in God and in his word, it will uphold you in a lion's den, on a cross, in Afghanistan, in a Roman Colosseum. That's, that's the point that's being made. The wicked lion, wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. This is, this is just a contrast. He said he's never going to forget and if there was ever an excuse to forget, it would be being distracted by wicked people lying in wait, hiding. You know, you play and someone hides and you're walking around. They're hidden in a room. It's just me and my family, but if the kids will hide. You sort of walk in very waiting for someone to jump out. Well, he's saying the wicked are hiding, waiting to destroy him. You think of something that could potentially be distracting. Get your mind off God and his word. It would be looking for the wicked. Is that them over there? That the wicked are lying in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. He's actually doing the thing he said he's going to do. I'm not going to forget your word. And so even as he has this potential distraction of the wicked, he is considering God's word. That's the contrast. He meditates on God's word. Which brings us then to the final verse, point D. Experience the true freedom of his word. Now, the, the metaphor here um, doesn't work as well in English. It's, it's Hebrewism. Uh, I have seen a limit to all perfection. The blank here, I literally have seen an end to all perfection. But your word is exceedingly broad. And broad, what does that mean? Well, the idea is close, tight space versus broadness. You can see this plainly in uh, Psalm 118. I was in a tight space, and the Lord set me in a broad place. And so the idea of a broad, stable place is freedom, being set at liberty, not being confined and cramped. I've seen a limit to all perfection. I've, whatever good things, this is, I think, another way of saying what the author of Ecclesiastes says, whatever good and durable things there are, they come to an end. By contrast, God's word is a wide, broad place. God's word gives exceeding security, or you could put liberty in there. God's word gives exceeding security. I'll give you another example of this phrase being used, Psalm 18, verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place. 
he rescued me. So the, the picture is the contrast is narrow tightness and pressure. And he's feeling the pressure of his enemies. He's feeling the pressure of hidden foes. And he's looking around and whatever safety, whatever good things there are, he sees an end to it. They're not enduring forever. They're not eternal. They're not certain. I've seen an end or a limit to all perfection. In contrast, your word, your commandment is exceedingly broad. If it's beneath my feet, I am stable, I'm secure, and I'm at liberty. God God made us for himself. And when we trust in his word, we, we find our freedom and our liberty. So how do you combat the anguish of the previous strophe, the, the, the affliction, the, the vexation? You, you fix your hope on things that are eternal and secure. But Paul said we, we look not to the things that are temporal, the things that are eternal. We, we walk by faith and not by sight. And sometimes you start by reminding yourself. I really think verses 89 to 92 are him declaring, reminding himself of these things are true. Wait a second. As bad as it is, your word is firmly established forever in heaven. As bad as it is all around me are evidences of your faithfulness. As bad as it is, I remember that trusting in your word, loving your word, preserved me through previous affliction. And then he responds, okay, I'm not going to forget your word. I'm going to entrust myself to you. I'm yours. Save me. I'm not going to be distracted, even though the wicked threaten me, because I know that your word gives me true freedom. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song. Please stand with me as we sing.